Let's pray. God, thank you again for this time this morning to come and encounter your word, to learn, to understand, to know you more, to know how you work in and through the lives of your people, how you work in and through our lives, Lord. And so we just pray for open hearts and minds and understanding this day as we give it to you in the name of Christ. Amen. A while back, my mother-in-law, Sandra, and father-in-law, Jim, were on vac- um, vacation in Hawaii. And one day, they decided to go to the pool. And they went to the pool, and the pool was not that crowded. But there was a mom, and she had a little girl, about a four-year-old girl. And the mom was sitting a little bit ways from the, the girl, and the girl was sitting by the edge of the pool. And then all of a sudden, Jim looked over, and the girl couldn't be seen. And so he quickly made his way over and saw that she had fallen in the pool and was seeking down to the bottom. So without even thinking, he just jumped in, clothes and all, and rescued the girl. Delivered her from death, literally. And he took her over to the mother, and the mother didn't speak English. And she didn't really understand what had happened. She didn't understand that Jim, through his quick thinking, had saved her daughter's life. You know, we have a story this morning as we're continuing to go through the story. We have a story of deliverance. It's really a deliverance from death. The the Israelites, the Hebrews, they're called both names. They were oppressed, we're going to see, and they needed to be delivered. And so this morning we're going to look at how God acts in and through his people's lives to to bring deliverance in those times um, when we need it. So, last week we left off, Joseph had had this uh, great understanding of the Pharaoh's dream, right? He understood that there's going to be seven years of abundance, and then there's going to be seven years of famine. And so he, he had it so that they stored up food for the seven years of abundance, so that when the seven years of famine came, the people had enough food to live. In essence, he saved many people's lives because of that. And also, in that whole event, God had his hand on that, and it restored Joseph to his family. Remember, he had been sold into slavery. Now, he was brought back into restoration with his family. Well, as we come into Exodus, Joseph and his brothers and their generation has passed away. And a new Pharaoh has risen up, a Pharaoh who had no affiliation with Joseph or anything that happened before him. And he he didn't look at the the Israelites, he didn't look at them as a, a people that he could work with. He looked at them with fear, right? He looked at them at how numerous they were, and he was afraid that at some point they would rise up and either overthrow him or they would all leave. And so he said, I need to take advantage of the situation. And so he oppressed them. He made them slaves. He gave them work to do for his benefit and for his own feeling of power. What a great surprise this must have been to the Israelites. I mean, they were living peacefully. They were prospering, right? They were doing great. And then now, then they find themselves in slavery. You know, life can throw you curves at any time, can't it? Life can be going along well, and all of a sudden, a crisis hits, right? Maybe it's a monetary crisis. Maybe it's a health crisis. Maybe it's a family issue that arises. At any time, our life can turn from going seemingly well to having great trouble and turmoil. Just like the snap of a fingers, 
life can turn on us and we can find ourselves in a crisis. And I think this story this morning helps us to understand how is God present in those times of crises. Well, the Pharaoh didn't stop just oppressing the people because they kept flourishing, right? And so he took it a step further. In fact, he made a decision that I think we would all agree is a horrible, horrible decision. And we read it in uh, Exodus 11, uh, 1, verse 12 and 22. Read the, the yellow part with me. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. What an atrocity that is. What an atrocity where the Pharaoh was so afraid that he believed that he, if he let all these boys grow up, then they would become warriors, right? And they would fight against him. And so he said, we're going to kill all the boys so that I am protected in future years. What a terrible decision that was. Well, as the story unfolds, we know that Moses' mother was able to save Moses, and she put him in his basket, and she sent him down the river, and the Pharaoh's daughter discovered him and took him as her own and brought him into the palace. And there, Moses not only had his life saved, but he would receive training that would benefit him later when God gave him a call that we will see here in a moment. What a great turn of events where Moses is put in a place where he is going to be used by God in an amazing way. You know, if we look at our lives, I know in my own life, I've had situations where I made this really poor decision and, and could have really caused trouble for myself, and, and it worked out okay. And I look back on it and I say, wow, God had his hand on me right there. And God protected me right there. And I believe because he protected me right there is because he had a work for me to do over here. And I know that's true for your life as well. God has hand his, had his hand on your, on your life in many ways. And if you look at the situation, you say, oh, this could have really turned out for, uh, destructive for me. But God protected me. And look at how God can or wants to use me here. We need to believe that God has a plan for our lives, that he will continually watch over us, protect us, and use us for later on. We need to give ourselves over to God and trust him in that way. See, we live in a world that oftentimes is afraid of God, afraid of God's people, right? And we'll try to oppress God, try to oppress God's people by doing terrible things in this world to God's people. I mean, we see it happen all the time around the world. We need to, we need to say to people, you know what, there's a God who loves you. I mean, what a great story that was about the, the prison, right? Six of the 11 men came to know Jesus, and we need to pray that God would transform their lives and take them from whatever life they were in and use them in a powerful way for the kingdom of God. That is what it's all about. That's what we're all to be about, right? To preach this gospel of this God who loves us and who saves us and transforms us and redeems us and uses us. For his glory and for his kingdom. That's what it's all about. There's a story of a quiet forest dweller, lived high in the mountains above this, uh, this Alps, city in the Alps. And 
one day the council decided, well, we want to hire this man, and we're going to call him the keeper of the spring. And we're going to hire him, and his job is to keep the, the waters clean, to keep the debris and the silt and all the, all the stuff that can go into the water, to keep it clean so that it flows down well, because this, this spring flowed by the city. And because it flowed by the city, it, it helped to make the, the city even more beautiful. And swans would swim in the water, and the, the water would turn the mill wheels that would power the, the businesses, and, and it um, fed water to the farmlands. And so for many years, things were going well, and the tourists would come to visit this beautiful city. A number of years went by, and some of the city council changed, and they were having a budget meeting one one day, and one of the younger members on the council was looking over the budget, and he says, who is this keeper of the spring? Why are we paying him all this money? For all we know, he doesn't even do anything. How do we know he's even doing his job? We don't need to spend the money on this. And so by unanimous vote, they voted to release the keeper of the spring. Well, a few weeks went by, nothing changed, but then soon, when autumn came and the leaves fell and branches broke off, Soon the water started to turn brown, and odor started to come, and the mill, mill wheels started to turn less slowly, and finally they stopped. And the embarrassed city council held an emergency meeting, realized their error, immediately rehired the keeper of the spring, and within a couple of weeks, everything was flowing well, looking good. The swans were back, the tourists were back, and everything was beautiful. And you look at that, just like the, the person on the council, here's someone we don't even see. What is that person doing? He's not even doing any good work, right? And oftentimes we probably feel like that, don't we? We probably feel like, you know, who am I? I'm just some insignificant person, you know? I'm not a Moses, I'm not a David, I'm not an Abraham, right? We, we don't have these big names, right? But we, in essence, are the keeper of the spring. We're the ones that keep things Beautiful. We're the ones that bring hope to the world. We're the one that brings beauty to the world. We're the ones that bring the truth to the world, to help our world live well and live in love with one another. That is our job. And we may feel insignificant, but the little things we do, picking up the branches, cleaning out the silt, the little things we do makes a big difference in our world. And we need to believe that God can work in us in doing this. Well, as the keeper of the spring was one person, so God knew that even one person could right the ship. And so God called Moses to help with the situation. As the story goes, uh, Moses has to flee Egypt because he, he killed an Egyptian soldier because he was so angry with the way his people were being treated. He killed the Egyptian soldier, and because of that, he had to flee. And he fleed to Midian. And in Midian, he met his wife, and he began to tend flocks, flocks of sheep. And one day he was out, and he saw a bush burning. But it wasn't being consumed. And all of a sudden, as he approached, this voice came, spoke out of this bush, spoke to him. It was God's voice. And God told him, Moses, you're going to save my people. Now Moses thought he was trying to save his people by killing the Egyptian shoulder, right? He was going to do it by force. But see, God's plan is always better than our plan. And God's plan always works well. You see what happened to Moses' plan, right? It made him have to leave Egypt. 
God says, no, I have a better plan. We've been waiting a lot of years for this to happen. We've been waiting for you to grow up. You are now at a place, both emotionally and understanding that you need me, you're at a place where I can use you now. But Moses doesn't think that he's the right person for the job. He doesn't think he has the right skill. He doesn't think that he has the training. He, he starts to make excuses about why he can't do this, right? Have we ever done that? No, we've never done that, right? <laughs> Where we're called to do a work and we're like, no, I can't do it. I don't have the skill. I don't have the training. I don't have the time. I don't have the energy. I don't have whatever, right? Fill in the blank. We, we try to make excuses when we feel this call. I remember when I was a youth director and I would look at the pastor up in the front and I'd say, oh, I'm never going to do that. <laughs> and look where I am now, right? <laughs> With God's help, we can do it. We can't do it on our own. We never have the right skill. We never right have the right training. But if God is with us, being with us, walking with us, empowering us, making us capable, we can do what God calls us to do. And we need to do it together. When we join together, God will do great and powerful things through our lives. So God and Moses begin to have discussion. It's a really fun discussion. I encourage you to read it in Exodus chapters 3 and 4. But let me just highlight uh, uh, something for you here in chapter 4. And read the yellow with me. Then the Lord said to Moses, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. I probably would run from it, too. I have a fear of snakes. And he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand. He's afraid of it. He's like, reach out your hand and grab it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. You know, if you were reading this verse, if I was reading this verse in terms of our own place, you might say the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, the God, or the God of Abraham, the God of ja- Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Moses, the God of David, the God, right? All the way down to the God of Chris. We are part of that line. The covenant promise has gone down on and on and on, has gone down that line, and we, South Bay Presbyterian Church, we're part of that covenant promise. It's an amazing covenant promise, and we are part of that. The point God is making is to Moses is that God is the one in charge. You don't think you're, you're capable? Well, you're, you're kind of not, but with my help, with my presence, you are capable. Look what I can do. Just throw, I mean, just throw down the staff, and it turns into a snake. I want to show you that I am capable of doing what I want to do through you. I am capable of saving the people through you. We are called to be God's voice, to do God's work, to be God's feet and hands, to touch people's lives. Ours is not to argue, but to obey. Whatever we have, whether it's a staff or a car or a voice or whatever we have, God can take that and use it for his purpose. We just need to obey and walk in that way, and God will work in and through our lives. You know, one of the neat things about being a missionary is when you go, you really feel relying on the Lord. It's like, I'm in a land that I don't feel comfortable. 
I'm in a place that I don't know what I'm doing. All of a sudden, I find myself with 11 young men in prison. What am I going to do? You know, and then all of a sudden, the, the word of the Lord hits, I'm going to call the pastor. But see, when we're missionaries, when we go on mission trips, that's why it's so great to go on mission trips or service trips, because we put ourselves in a place of uncomfortability, right? And we have to rely on the Lord. And then the Lord says, now you're in the right place, because now I can do my work through you. That's what God has chosen. He's chosen to do his work through you and through me and through our church. We just have to understand, I need to rely on the Lord. Moses had to get to that place. Well, I want to go back to chapter 3 of uh, Exodus for a moment because I want to talk about um, Moses continues to argue, right? And he, and he says to them, you know, people are going to want to know your name, right? So the underlying part, read with me, Exodus 3.11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Right? He's questioning his position. He's I mean, who am I? Now, remember, Moses had been in the palace of the Pharaoh, so he had standing there, more so than, than any other Israelite. Then we go to verse 12. And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. This mountain you're standing right now, you're going to worship at some point on this mountain. When you get here, you know that it is I who have done all this. Now, what's interesting is God simply says, I'll be with you. That's all he says. He thinks that that's going to be enough for Moses, right? That should be enough. I'm going to be with you. If you have my backing, if you have my power, then you don't have to worry about anything else. Now, you would think that that would have been enough for Moses because he would have known about Abraham and Jacob, and Isaac, and Joseph. He would have seen how God had worked in all those people, but don't we, don't we do that? We doubt God, even though we can look. I mean, one of the reasons why we're looking at the story is so we can see what God has done all through history, so that when we get to this point now, we say, look at all that God has done. I can trust God. And yet we still doubt. We still doubt. Even though we have this history of all that God has done. God said, I'll be with you, just like I was with Abraham, just like I was with Jacob, just like, right? I'll be with you. But that's not enough for Moses. He presses on, implying that people will want to know God's name. Who is it that, that's sending me? They want to know. So verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Again, he doesn't give him much, does it? Who, who, what's your name? I am. So let's look at that for a minute. I want us to really understand what this means, I am, because understanding this name of God will help us to, to understand all the more who God is and how and why God works in our life. So, we understand that the name I am means that God is self-existent. He has no dependence on anyone or anything else, which means he's also self-existent. He is also self-sufficient and therefore all-sufficient. I am who I am refers to his being the eternal one. 
He has been there for all eternity. He always has been. He always will be. I am. I exist for all of eternity. From him all things have come forth, and in him all things find their meaning. To understand that God is I am is to understand that he is the creator himself who created this world, who created you, who created me, who created all things. You know, our, our name identifies ourselves, doesn't it? Identifies us. If you've ever had anyone call you by the wrong name, it's, it's bothersome, doesn't it? And if they persist in calling you the wrong name, then at times not only does it become bothersome, but it becomes hurtful maybe, right? We react, if someone constantly calls us the wrong name, we're not going to feel good about that. It identifies who we are. Get it right. If you have any care and concern for me, you will learn my name, right? You'll know who I am. Our name identifies us. God's name identifies him. God's name I am gives him identity as the one who was, who is, and who will always be. Secondly, we see that God's name deserves honor and respect. We are to revere the name of God. It is sad how people, including in this story Pharaoh, and in our world today, don't honor or revere the name of God. In fact, the Israelites, they would not even say the name Yahweh. They wouldn't even say it. They would just write it. They wouldn't say it. They, they, they believed that they didn't want to take God's name in vain, so they didn't want it to come out of their mouths in any way. They held the name of God in high esteem. We, you know, when I hear people use Jesus' name as a, a swear word, it just really, really bothers me. I mean, all swear words bother me, but, but that one particularly. We need to revere and hold up God's name, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, holy be thy name. Third, the name I am shows the faithfulness of God. God is the one true God who fulfill what he wills to do. His name shows that we can count on God always to be there for us and to work for us. God is trustworthy. God is the only one we can really trust. There's much more that could be said. I mean, we could talk for hours about God's character and about God's name, but I think it's important that we understand this name I am is a powerful statement of God to Moses saying, I am is sending you. I am is with you. I am is empowering you. I am is the one who will make this happen. So God sends Aaron to Moses because one of the things Moses said is, well, God, I, I don't speak so well. Okay, I'll send you Aaron. Aaron speaks better than you. And so Aaron will help you in this endeavor. Right? And a lot of times it's better to go with others, other people, right? It's, it's better to go in pairs than it is to go by yourself. There's something that empowers us, strengthens us when we're, when we're doing it with another person. When you take a group, I mean, if Tom had gone all by himself to the Philippines, that would have been a far different experience. But because he had all these people around him, I think he felt stronger. He felt more confident. He felt more excited to be on this journey for God. And so Aaron comes alongside him. Now, they have to deal with Pharaoh, and this is not going to be easy, because Pharaoh is very powerful, and Pharaoh thinks of himself as a god. 
And so ultimately, what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to show Pharaoh that it is better for him to let the people go than to keep them, right? And he's not going to want to let them go because they're, they're providing the bricks and they're building the buildings and they're providing food and they're building statues for him. And, and if he lets them go, then he's going to look weak to the other nations. He is not going to want to let them go. So what is it that's going to cause him to want to let them go? And in the story, you see that there's a, a series of plagues, right? There's a series of plagues that come upon the Egyptians that try to make their life miserable, ultimately saying, boy, it's going to be better if we just let them go. If we let them go, all this will stop, and we won't have to deal with this. And you'll see in the story, right, he turns the water into blood, sends frogs, lice, flies, pestilence, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and ultimately the killing of the firstborn sons. For all who don't believe in what Moses is saying. Remember, Moses says, put blood around your doorposts and you will be saved. And all who believe and did that were saved. And all who didn't were not. This was referred to as the Passover. And I don't know if you know the connection, but they have the Passover here, which was a, a forerunner of what happened in Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ was the Passover lamb. And it is the blood of Christ that saves us from death. When we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord, in essence, putting the blood around the doorpost, putting it around our life, right? We are saved from our sinful ways and we are given eternal life in Christ. The Passover lamb. So we have the Passover happens and Pharaoh's son dies and he's in such despair and he's so I'm angry and upset. He's like, let him go. I, I don't want any more of this. I don't want any more. He finally got to the place where he said, it is better to let them go than to keep him here. So he lets them go. And the journey takes a long time. People believe that there was at least a million men. So if you include children and women, there is like, Maybe two, three million people. Can you imagine? You traveled with seven people, right? Can you imagine traveling with three million people, right? Could you imagine how slow that process would be? And so they're traveling along, three million people going along. And so time goes by and the Pharaoh says, you know what? What did I do? I let my workforce go. I, I was weak. And so he got his army and he started after them. And what's so amazing about this story is that, oh, so anyway, I want to tell this first. We'll get to that in a second. So you have a picture. I thought this was a great picture. So you have this, it's such amazing, right? These baby birds, they just sit here and they wait, right? And what are they waiting for? They're waiting for their mother to come back with food, right? Why? Because they're too small to care for themselves. They can't provide for themselves. So they just sit there in this nest with their mouths open waiting for food. And in time, the mother's job is to feed them and to strengthen them and ultimately teach them how to fly. Here's a lesson for some of you parents, right? Sometimes the mother even has to kick him out of the nest. That's free. That's just a little side note, okay? Kick him out of the nest. You get that, right? Kick him out of the nest. And so finally, her job is to teach them how to be able to fly and to provide and find food for themselves, right? You have to remember that the Israelites were slaves for many years. They did not know how to feed themselves. They did not know how to protect themselves. They did not know how to govern themselves. 
And so God, over these next many years, was going to be preparing them to become the nation that he designed them to be. And so God had to do some great preparation in them. And so as they're traveling along, God is uh, providing a pillar of cloud by day so they can know what direction, right? This is the first GPS, okay? Oh, which way we go? Oh, there, we go there, okay? At night, there's a pillar of fire, right, at night to guide them. Ultimately, they get to the Red Sea. You know the story. God parts the Red Sea, right? And again, remember that story. How long did Moses have to hold his staff? I mean, it was all night long. Have you ever done that? You pray a prayer. Okay, God, do this for me. God, do this for me. You know, five minutes go by, an hour goes, God, why aren't you answering, right? How often are we impatient when God doesn't respond quickly to our prayers? Right? The parting of the Red Sea took the whole night. The going to the Promised Land took 50 years, 40 years. And then they got into the wilderness. They needed food. He provided manna for them, falling down from the sky. He fed them from the heavens. They needed water. He provided water from a rock. And time and time again, God provides for his people, guides his people, watches over people. And what do they do? How do they respond? They grumble. They grumble and they say, we're in the wilderness. If only we could be back in Egypt. What? Is that the craziest thought you ever heard? They said, I'd rather be in slavery in Egypt where I knew where my life was. I had a home. I knew where my food was coming. Yeah, but think about the life you had in Egypt. I know, but at least it was known. I knew, right? And how often do we do the same thing? Paul talks about this in Romans 6. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. But how often, without even realizing they were doing it, we're like, you know, I remember my old life. I remember when I didn't have to follow all these rules of God. I, I remember, boy, that was, there's some fun times. I, I think I, I want to do that again. Satan didn't attack me when I was in that life, right? Satan didn't make my life hard. And so sometimes we want to go back to our slavery of our sin, our selfish ways, without even realizing it. And Paul says, that's craziness. You are now slaves to righteousness. You are living for God, an abundant life that God has for you. Don't go back. So, let's just close here. This world often pulls us into slavery of ways that we, we aren't even aware of. Slaves to making money, slaves to seeking ultimate happiness, slaves to sinful living, slaves to the idea of a better life, slaves to materialism, and on and on it goes. We desire this so much that we, in essence, become slaves to it. And God says, I want to deliver you from that. And even more, God says, now that you are delivered, you have a responsibility. And what is that responsibility? 
to seek out others who are slaves to this world and be that Moses to them. Help them to be delivered out of that slavery into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Let us pray.